So you ever wonder what kind of people get into MIT? Or what they do after they graduate? Welcome to this week's episode of Unlimited, also known as Bila Hudud. We're brought to you by the MIT Arab Alumni Association. Here we talk about the different paths Arab students took to get to MIT while they were students and after graduation. What we hope to uncover is that these paths, quite like the people who took them, are unlimited. I'm your host, Dana Dabusi, class of 2020, and thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Unlimited. Hello, Sahla, and welcome to another episode of Unlimited. This week, we're interviewing Hazim, who is a special advisor to the board, and you'll hear a lot more about him in the upcoming introduction. So let's just get to it. And uh, thanks for tuning in to this episode of Unlimited. Hazim is a partner and transportation consultant at Engicon, a multidisciplinary engineering consulting firm based in Amman, Jordan. He's involved in several infrastructure projects across the region. Hazim also serves as a founder and board member in a number of organizations, including a public transport advocacy group, in Jordan, and a regional podcasting platform called Sol. He writes regularly about transport and is considered among Jordan's foremost experts on the subject. Hazim was on the board of the MIT Arab Alumni Association for over a decade and has been the president for three years. Uh, Right now, he serves as an ex-officio advisor to the board. And welcome, Hazim. Thank you, Dana. So Hazim, how did you get involved with uh, the MIT AAA and how has your role evolved over the years? Well, it's uh, I graduated from MIT in uh, in 2008 uh, and uh, the following year I heard about a, a conference happening uh, in Abu Dhabi that was organized by this organization called the MIT Arab Alumni Association. I think I had a trip to the UAE around the same time and I managed to, you know, to register and to attend that conference where I got to meet, you know, some of the uh, board members of the association and get to know the association uh, uh, more and you know, after that, I, I thought I would I would uh, get more involved. So I ran for the uh, election a couple of years uh, later in 2011, and uh, and I've been involved since then. Between 2011 and 2013, I was uh, vice president. Uh, from 2013 to 2016, I was president, and then uh, you know, since 2016, I've been serving as an advisor in the association. Well, it's been a great addition to the group, uh, and I can tell from your story and many other stories that that conference really brought together a lot of the people who have been on this board for many years. That's true. It did. And it's sort of, it's, uh, you know, every new board member who came in introduced the association to someone else. So it's, there's always been mm-hmm. that uh, ripple effect sort of. Yeah. So a lot has come from that. And I'm sure we'll, we'll get into it more when we have our conversation with Talal, who, who ran that com- uh, conference, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So Hazim, as we're going through this journey and, and getting to know a lot more uh, about the board members, prior board members, advisors, uh, we wanted to really touch on how everyone got to MIT to begin with. You know, uh, a lot of people came from very different backgrounds. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up at MIT? Sure. I grew up in uh, in Amman, Jordan. Uh, that's where I was born and, and spent most of my life and, and currently uh, live. You know, I, I grew up in a 
in a family and and then went to a school that instilled sort of a strong sense of community in me and and a, and a strong uh, I would say pan arab identity so not an identity that is uh, narrow to a, to a you know a, a religion or a tribe or even uh, even a certain country and and I was always raised to be a good citizen and always you know in tune with with what's going on in the public sphere uh, we were you know we were in a private school but we were not by no means uh, uh, living in a bubble and I spent you know my whole life in Amman in the same school and then I had always had plans to study abroad uh, specifically in the United States I think and and even my parents encouraged me uh, to to study in the US because because of the uh, the more flexible you know uh, 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 college uh, uh, education system uh, there and they never really uh, you know as as is the case with many maybe arab parents or the the, the traditional sort of stereotype that you know uh, pressuring their children to study to go into a certain field uh, over another I, I was never pressured to 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 study in a particular field uh, even though my father actually had founded a you know a large uh, by then a large engineering consulting firm which i'm currently working at actually but there was never this expectation that you know Hazem's going to go on and study uh, civil engineering, for example. So, uh, so I ended up in uh, going to a liberal arts college, which is you know, sort of the, the opposite of, of uh, you know a very an in-depth engineering program, uh, where I got to you know take courses in different uh, in different subjects, as is the case with you know liberal arts education in the U.S. Uh, I ended up majoring in economics. Uh, and minoring in computer science uh, and math, and I've, I was always I've always been into computers and into technology, and I think that's also has you know uh, spilled over into my into my career in transportation. But I I always had the the intention of of maybe pursuing uh, a, a higher degree or or a career in something related to to engineering, partly because of because of the uh, you know the family business that we had back home. Uh, so after graduating from college, I went to McAllister College. It's, it's a liberal arts college in, in, in Minnesota. Where we can talk about the cold weather later, you know, which I was not expecting. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I, I talked to a, a close family friend who was a, a, you know, a professor in civil engineering at, at Berkeley uh, and who introduced me to, to transportation uh, engineering. And I... I looked into it, and I, I was—I really was was interested and fascinated by transportation because you know it it, it sort of had that engineering you know uh, aspect that I was looking for, uh, but it was also broad in a sense. It uh, it it covered you know uh, transportation programs cover uh, engineering aspects, but also planning uh, policy. So there's uh, there's all sorts of uh, economics as well. There's all sorts of aspects that that go into transportation systems uh, engineering and planning, and and that that appealed to me, I think. And so I ended up applying uh, to uh, you know to different transportation programs in the U.S. masters in transportation programs, and uh, and ended up going to MIT right after my bachelor's degree. And looking back now, it's uh, uh, you know sometimes I think, and it's sort of funny and and weird to think of you know not not really doing anything transportation related before before getting into this program uh, and just you know applying right after straight out of my bachelor's degree and going into this uh, uh, into this field which i'm today you know looking back i have no regrets i'm i'm very passionate uh, passionate about it and about the uh, the specific uh, field that i got to, got into which is urban public transportation uh, which we can discuss later mm-hmm. so uh, so that that's how i ended up at mit in in 2006 
So really this interest in transportation started right as you were graduating and has really taken you a long way in your career as well. Can you touch a little bit on what kind of ideas you focused on during your master's and how that led to what you're working on now with uh, your different organizations? I mean, my, my interest in transportation evolved and, uh, you know, at, at, even at MIT, even within a, in, in a two-year master's program, we, we you know, we, we, uh, we studied uh, different transportation systems, you know, traffic analysis, uh, public transportation operations, planning, economics, even air transportation, freight transportation, etc. But I was assigned to the, uh, to the transit research lab, which is the, the public transport research lab. Uh, and ended up doing research that uh, was funded by Transport for London uh, and that focused on, on uh, you know, using data from uh, their smart card system in London, the Oyster card, to analyze demand and, and you know, develop models that, that try to explain, uh, you know, different travel patterns for, uh, for people in London. So I was really, you know, I, my, my research focused on, on big data, uh, econometrics, you know, so using also my, my economics, I've, I've always been interested in economics and, and, and statistics, uh, even in my mm-hmm. undergrad. So I ended up, uh, you know, focusing, uh, focusing on that. Uh, and, uh, and my interest in, in, in urban uh, public transportation grew. And I think it all was, was also partly driven, you know, and, and I think about this now, looking back, by uh, the fact that I don't drive, you know, so I, I have, uh, you know, I suffer from low vision, uh, and I, I never had a driver's license. And, and I think uh, learning about, you know, uh, how cities can have, you know, I, I grew up in Amman, which is very car dominated, you know, car, car oriented, yeah. uh, but learning, learning about uh, how cities can have different, different options for mobility, uh, more balanced, uh, multimodal mobility systems, really got me even more passionate mm. uh, about this and uh, i always uh, i was always concerned though when i was at mit about you know what i would do with such a degree in uh, back in jordan if i want to go back into jordan uh, which i always wanted yeah. to to do i mean they don't we don't really have good public transport in jordan so that that was always a concern towards uh, and this is where sort of the stars were aligned you know Close to my graduation, I was looking for jobs in the U.S. I wanted to, you know, to initially work maybe in the U.S. and then move back to Jordan. And I emailed the, the family friend that I had mentioned, uh, who who really got me into transportation, who was at Berkeley. He was on a sabbatical in Jordan and uh, had basically been hired by the mayor of Amman back then to start up a transport unit for the city. The, the municipality oh. of Amman had had all had never had any control over uh, over public transport in the city. The public transport was prior to two thousand seven two thousand eight was managed by the national government in Jordan and planned by the national government. But in two thousand seven, uh, a law was passed, basically basically transferring the the that authority to the city uh, level, which makes sense, mm-hmm. you know, uh, integrating planning mm-hmm. uh, planning land use planning with transport planning in, in cities to bring it under one authority and you know i asked him where do you think i should apply in the u.s and he's like why the u.s why don't you come back here we're looking for people uh, you know in amman and uh, mm-hmm. so it was a really a unique opportunity and it was a no-brainer for me it was an obvious uh, choice uh, you know the choice was between you know staying in the u.s and finding some job at a consulting firm or coming back to my own city and really starting up 
the first transport planning unit for Amman. And fixing a problem that was important absolutely, to you too. Absolutely. So how were you able to address that issue and, and what were some of your accomplishments? Yeah, I mean, so, I, I, you know, I was worried about not not using what I had learned at MIT <laughs> when going back to Jordan, but but my, you know, I went back to Jordan, started my job at the Great Ramai Municipality, and I really applied what I had uh, learned. I mean, we're talking mm. about real, you know, the technical stuff, uh, the transport modeling uh, work that's really uh, a very technical uh, subject. I, I worked on that in, uh, in Amman, so it was it was really rewarding. I, you know, during my time there, which is around two and a half years, I was part of the team that, that uh, supervised the development of the transport and mobility master plan for Amman, which is, you know, it set Amman's vision for, uh, for transport for the next 15 years. Uh, I wow. also oversaw the development of the bus rapid transit system, uh, which is uh, the first, you know, rapid transit system in Amman. So it was really... Uh, it was really a good time to be uh, to be there. Uh, you know, since then there have mm-hmm. been setbacks. There have been you know political uh, issues that have delayed certain projects. But I think back then it was really a good time to be there uh, to, be, to be in you know that place at that time. Around two thousand and ten. Two thousand eight to two thousand ten. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember you presented this uh, a little bit at SciTech, and you had this big map of Amman and the new public transportation. Uh, Paths was that something you developed at that time or later on? That was later on. So after 2010, 2011 onwards, I joined Engicon, which is the you know the now partly family-owned engineering consulting firm, and where I continue to do some you know uh, consulting work in in transportation. I uh, around 2014, I co-founded a, a transport advocacy group called Ma'an Nasil. and uh, right. through that through that group, we uh, you know we we did several. Uh, you know, we worked on, on, on several uh, tracks from advocacy, lobbying, uh, etc. And we also worked on developing the first uh, public transport uh, map for Amman through, you know, a completely volunteer-led effort, uh, led effort where we had volunteers ride on buses and track bus routes. And then we, we worked with a design company to draw up this nice map that, uh, that I showed on uh, site. Yeah, I, I, I was really impressed by that effort and uh, so it came out of one of your your startups. Can since we're talking about startups, can we talk a little bit about all of the different companies that you had a part in founding? <laughs> Mashallah. Uh, so yeah, yeah. So Mahan Nasser was like a, just an advocacy group, uh, but but the startup yeah. that I I co-founded was uh, so uh, so I started it up with my siblings. Uh, and uh, ah. it was, uh, you know, during the time of the Arab Spring and the protests back then. And my sister, who works in media, you know, had this idea of, of developing a social network that's uh, uh, that's based on audio, uh, so like an mm-hmm. audio Twitter in a sense. And um, and since I'm the technology guy in the house, they're like, you know, we'll get to let Hazan <laughs> take take this forward. And uh, so I, I, at time I left my job at NGCon, I was I was only working part time at NGCon, and I focused my efforts on. Uh, on South, and that was in mm. 2012, uh, 2013, uh, through the summer of 2014, I would say. We built uh, a social media platform uh, that is that is based on audio. So you would po- you know sign up and post 42 seconds of audio. You can attach a picture, 
mm. and uh, and people can share it, uh, can comment on it through audio, can echo it, which was our version of the retweet. Uh, and in the 42 seconds instead of 142 characters. 42 seconds, the answer <laughs> to everything from uh, whatever the, the, the book is called, uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide mm. to the Galaxy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So, so you know, we built we built an app and we built a web platform, and we at one point we had around fifty thousand users, uh, you know, from all over the region, uh, Jordan, Saudi, mm-hmm. Egypt, uh, you know, all over. You know that we was it was doing well, but it wasn't doing as well as we had thought. And even similar platforms around the world were uh, weren't you know weren't growing uh, uh, really uh, by that much. And uh, you know, maybe sometimes to to give to give myself or or and my siblings credit maybe we were ahead of our time in a sense i mean this this was a time before you know mm-hmm. uh, whatsapp audio messages for example so people weren't really comfortable oh, yeah. just using their phones and speaking and posting so that so we, we sort of you know parked that project on the side in the late summer of 2014 i think and you know i, I moved back to to ngcon to focus fully fully on ngcon a, a couple of years later uh, a good friend of, of ours uh, ramzi Testel, uh, uh, you know uh, brought us uh, this idea of, of pivoting into podcasting we already had a, a platform uh, you know, the name you know south which is a which is a, you know a special name a, a platform that hosts audio content so it was a matter of you know pivoting it and changing it into uh, into uh, a podcast platform and we're uh, this is what we're doing now so so south is running now and that you know ramsey's management I'm, I'm still involved at a high level we're producing uh, original content we're also providing podcast production services we have an you know an ad network and recently launched an, an audio articles platform where you know arabic uh, news articles are read out so it's it's exciting. Uh, there's a lot going on in that space, and uh, and I think it looks it looks very promising. So, what were some skills that you picked up from being involved in, you know, starting new companies, uh, leading initiatives, uh, and how have they helped you throughout your career? And I guess what skills did you need to use to break into this kind of uh, industry? Was it? I think it was. Uh... It it was challenging for me, I think, to start up a company and to lead because I I, uh, I never saw myself as a as a manager as starting up uh, something. Uh, I don't want to say I saw myself, you know, as just being an employee and working. But I don't know. It, it was just uh, uh, I never thought of myself as uh, as someone who would lead, you know, lead a business, or lead a, 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 a you know a community activism group or, or anything of that sort. So it, I think it was a challenge for me. Uh, and it was it was a learning experience throughout, and 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 I think it it really gave me a lot of skills that I really benefited me uh, uh, today in the work in the work that I do. It's uh, it's it's been also enriching to to be involved in so many different things. Uh, uh, you know, keeping myself busy. I think it's a unique experience, and uh, any for anyone who's thinking about starting a new company, especially within the region. And what were some of the obstacles you faced and how did you overcome them? And what made you able to overcome any of those obstacles? I think, I mean, I'm not the best person to speak about this because, uh, you know, I only spent two years working on, on the startup. And I think, you know, like many startups, we, we you know, we, we suffered from the lack of funding. Luckily, we were able to to self-fund it. But definitely, uh, it, it was a challenge to to sustain it, especially when we're talking about, a, you know, a startup that's uh, that's based on, on user-generated content, like a social network, a network mm-hmm. platform. 
so, uh, so it was very challenging uh, in that sense, getting the funding, sustaining it, paying employees. And and those are yeah. challenges that persist, I think, for, for startups in the Arab world. Yeah. Well, there's one example of a startup that has been doing really well, uh, regardless of the challenges. And seeing that you have a transport background and, and ex a lot of experience in, in the transport world, what can you talk about uh, regarding the first unicorn in the region, Kareem, which is a ride-sharing company similar to Uber? And, and you know, knowing the transportation scene in the region and how does Kareem distinguish itself from things like Uber and why was it so successful? I think, I mean, Kareem distinguished themselves from Uber through, you know, various features that they had in the app uh, that were very, you know, relevant to and specific to, to users in the region, like paying in cash and, and those, sort, those sorts of things. And, you know, Kareem, like Uber, were, were very successful in the region because they, they really provided, a, they really, you know, uh, managed to cover a huge gap. You know, I, I mentioned Jordan, but, but many of, you know, most other countries in the region suffer from a lack of, of reliable public transport systems. They're very car-dominated. Uh, the people drive their cars. So people always look for, for options, uh, for safe, affordable options to be able to move around. Uh, and I think, uh, uh, you know, with, with, with no uh, public transport system that provides that, I think Karim and Uber really filled the gap. And with a taxi system that many people view unfavorably as well in some, in some countries, uh, Karim and Uber really, uh, really filled that, uh, filled that void. Uh, overall, I think you know, and Karim is, is also now you know getting into this uh, this space of expanding beyond just the ride-hailing uh, private car uh, or individual you know passenger car service into buses and all of that. I think technology in general has a, has a huge role to play in uh, in transforming mobility in uh, in our region uh, and in and other places around the world. It, it has done so already in in many places, but I think uniquely in, in our region. Uh, we have the opportunity to use to use technology to leapfrog, you know, and not necessarily uh, go through them, you know, the, the more conventional path uh, that uh, you know countries with an advanced public transport system now uh, have gone through, and maybe set our our uh, unique path. Uh, I think there's there's a lot of potential in uh, in, uh, in 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 using technology to to improve uh, to improve mobility. Yeah, and for someone who is currently living in Saudi Arabia, and, and honestly, I, I grew up here, so I know the need for transportation, especially for women who couldn't drive up until this past year. So oh, definitely, yeah. those were some opportunities. Yeah. No, no, I mean, Jordan even has a lower, uh, uh, I think, participation rate of women in the workforce than Saudi, I think. Uh, mm -hmm. I think it's below 14%, and it's been like that oh, for wow. a few years. So and and uh, you know there have been studies that have shown that uh, that among the main reasons that women cite for not being able to work is the lack of lack of transportation. If there's one car in the household, wow. it's always the man who uses it. So so it's it's a huge problem, and uh, and providing you know safe, affordable uh, options for transportation can really uh, you know uh, lift people up in that sense. So something I'm getting from the kind of work you do, it's it's all kind of tied back into these really important social issues and solving them, thinking about them, thinking about how tech plays a role in solving those issues. What are some issues you see tech solving within the region in the future? In, in addition to transportation, which we've, which we've talked about, 
I think water, you know, especially a place like Jordan, you know, I think we're the second or third poorest country when it comes to water uh, resources. I think tech can play a, a, a role in, in better managing uh, uh, water resources. Really, I mean, we're, we're uh, you know, we're, we're in general infrastructure. We've, we're getting into a stage where we have to, we don't need to build more infrastructure necessarily. But we need to better manage and operate our existing infrastructure. Whether it's our water infrastructure, whether it's our road systems, we cannot build more roads, you know, to to uh, to get out, you know, get build our way out of the problem, basically. So we need tools to better manage and operate our infrastructure and to get more out of it, to make it more sustainable, to make it more efficient. And I think this applies to to water, to transport, and to other uh, to other sectors. Education, of course, is, is a huge uh, you know sector as well. You know, those are those are some of the areas where where technology can uh, can play a big role in transforming. And as I said, because of where we are in in the region, uh, technology really can help us uh, leapfrog and set our own path. In, in many of these sectors. So for our listeners who may be students now or thinking about making different shifts in their careers, what are some opportunities that they should look into? Some, uh, What are some things that they can study that would be uh, relevant for our region? And how can we help people who are being indecisive right now pick the path that is most useful for our region? I don't want to give the cliche answer of saying like, you know, you should, I hear many people giving advice on like, you know, getting into data and AI and all of that. That's all important. But I think in general, uh, you know, whatever you do, and this is especially important for MIT. And I think it, it really made me value my education at MIT coming from a liberal arts background is that whatever you do, you need to have breadth. You need to, you know, okay, you Focus on on a specific subject, uh, study it, get mm-hmm. you know good at it technically. But you should also have breadth. You should also consider, uh, you know, the different aspects beyond uh, just the subject that you're studying. The, the societal impacts, uh, policies, the environment, etc. And uh, you know, by doing so, you get much better at what you do at your at your field of expertise. So. So I think that that would be my advice is making sure that whatever topic you choose uh, to to study, yeah. uh, just make sure that you also have the the breadth of skills that you, you don't you don't have to be good at everything, but you have to at least have the knowledge, uh, and and at least an understanding of of the implications of of what you're doing in that specific field on on everything else. Right, because most uh, problems are intersectional, Annie. Just because you're dealing with transportation doesn't mean you're not also looking at economics and behavioral uh, society and the behavior of society or uh, any of those other factors that play a key role. Exactly. And this is actually what it was a unique, uh, you know, aspect in the transportation program at MIT. It was an inter- interdepartmental, uh, interdisciplinary oh. program. So it was housed under civil engineering, but we really took, you know, courses that were cross-listed with other, uh, with other departments as well. What other departments uh, did you take courses with? Mostly urban planning, I would say, but there were also mm-hmm. other, um, uh, engineering systems division, which I don't know if it exists. Uh, mm. um, the Center for Transportation and Logistics, mm-hmm. and then there were there were some others that I maybe I didn't take, but but mostly architecture and planning and uh, and those those. Yeah, but even within those uh, those departments, I, I I've taken some classes in the urban planning department, and you have people with very very diverse uh, backgrounds and, and perspectives either from like the policy side or the architectural side, as you were saying, 
or even the environmental landscaping kind of uh, aspect as well. And uh, how do you incorporate green spaces and into what you're planning? And uh, are you making sure your roads aren't uh, getting rid of all the the green space in the city? So definitely, there's a lot to be said about having an intersectional uh, education uh, education and keeping your even though you're getting specialization, you're you're still keeping that breadth and of knowledge. Definitely. So Hazem, since we are back on the topic of MIT, uh, something we're doing with uh, all of our panelists is having a a series of uh, rapid fire or or closing questions. Uh, It's been great having you on on the show today. Let's just go through and see if you can give us your answer to these questions. So when you were on campus, what was your go-to food spot? Uh, it's no longer there, unfortunately, but it was called Sepal. It was at the student center, and uh, it was run by uh, a guy named Walid Masoud, and he used to, you know, uh, offer ma'lube and uh, grilled falafel, which he was very proud of. He, <laughs> he claimed that he was the first to 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 uh, to invent grilled falafel, so that that was my go-to spot. <laughs> the healthier version. Well, we actually have a shawarma shack now, which has somewhat oh, cool. similar. Uh, food but uh, I'm sure the grilled falafel would have yeah. been great to have at the student center yeah uh, what's your favorite building I would say building one maybe the one where I had my office in I don't know it, uh, mm. it, uh, like I mean I, I liked the, the newer buildings but uh, building one had like this old MIT feel that, uh, that I liked right yeah I think they're renovating parts of it now and it was also number one, building one, that close to the close to the Charles River as well. So, exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's it's the closest to, to access, no matter where you're coming from. Yeah. Do you have a best study spot? My office. That was one of the perks of being <laughs> a grad student. Uh, you know, we had uh, mm-hmm. we had a very nice office space. Uh, so I think that was my favorite. How place. many people were in the program? I forget the exact number, but in the transit uh, lab, maybe we were around uh, 10, 15 in that office space, mm. 1, 235. Okay. So, yeah, between first and second year students, not to count at all. No. Okay. Because I'm imagining uh, like the, the Koch Institute where they have the biochemical engineers. Yeah. Uh, those were really getting cramped at, yeah, <laughs> at yeah. this point. Yeah. No, it was pretty quiet and uh, and a, a good place to study. Yeah. What was your go-to destination off campus? You know, when when you're at MIT, you're stuck in a bubble. So uh, yeah. So you know, I, I I remember when my mother came to you know to attend my graduation, I was showing her Boston and also getting to know the city at the same time because I had, <laughs> um, but sad to say my apartment but I lived off campus so I had an apartment <laughs> I don't know I guess Central Square generally we used to hang out a lot in Central Square yeah I, I, I get the, the feeling of the bubble I was basically uh, I got introduced to Boston the summer after my sophomore year by some people who were just visiting yeah so <laughs> I think it happens very often yeah, <laughs> yeah. and to close out this uh, great session we've had what is one thing that you really miss about MIT? The energy, I think. There was, uh, you know, so much. And in Boston in general, not just in MIT. I mean, I, I lived on 
uh, on Mass Ave right between MIT and Harvard. So, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I remember evenings where I would go to, you know, a lecture at MIT and then a, a concert at Harvard or a talk here. There, there was so much going on and so much energy uh, and and that's uh, that's definitely something I miss. Well, it's been great talking to you, Hazem. Uh, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story and even providing some insights into the region and and all the different opportunities that exist. Uh, well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That was Hazem Zureqat, our special advisor to the board and former president of the MIT AAA. Thanks for listening to our latest episode of Unlimited. Tune in on Tuesdays as we continue our Meet the Board series. We have so many incredible people within our community and hope we get a chance to talk to more of you. So if you want to be featured in our next series, then send us an email at mittraaaboard at gmail.com. As always, a special shout out to our scripting team, Arin Bahour and Omar Ubaya, as well as our editing team, Matmoon Tukhan. My name is Dana Dabusi, and I hope to see you at next week's episode of Unlimited.